I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Margaret. How are you? I'm good. What's that thing you have on your head? I uh, I started wearing a cap. Oh, why did you do that, Jesse? Because I'm losing my hair, Margaret. Jesse, it's attractive. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay, go. All right, let's have a conversation. I've been trying to figure out the best way to interview Margaret Atwood. I've been looking at uh, other people who did it. <laughs> there are yes, <laughs> there are trends. There are different techniques. No, listen, I never, I never start first. I'm never mean to people unless they're mean to me first. People tend to treat you a certain way, like you're like some kind but spooky fortune teller. They usually introduce you with words like prescient and prophetic. And, yeah. and then they kind of reassure their audience, don't worry, she's a good witch. And she's going she's gonna to help us figure our way through this. And then they'll kind of ask you how major world events are going to pan out. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking like, this is a lady who writes make-believe. Why are you asking her these questions? But uh, maybe they know something that I don't. So I, uh, maybe that's my first question. Are you magic? No. Prophetic, nobody can actually prophesy the future because there are too many variables. Prescient, I'll take. I'll take prescient. That's having a hunch that works out. You've had some good hunches, and it seems like the more dystopic the world gets, that's that's good for the Margaret Atwood business. Well, I don't know about that, (laughs) though I will quote my longtime film agent whose name is Ron Bernstein at the launch of the Handmaid's Tale television series in 2017. And you'll recall that that was just after the Trump election. We were sitting in a corner at this launch, which was very themed, very Hollywood. It had, you know, outfits and posters and signs on the washrooms, handmade on the girls, guardian on the boys. So Ron said, 
I hate to say this, but you're the only person who has benefited from the election of Donald Trump. (laughs) Which was sort of true because we were launching the series in April, having been filming it the previous August and through November. And if that election had not come out that way, everyone would have said, well, as you know, it's just fantasies made up. This will never happen. And as it was, they said, oh, no. And the oh, no turns out to have been pretty true. And then uh, Roe v. Wade gets repealed. Ka-ching. Another one for Atwood. Well, I don't think think that's a very uh, uh, idealistic way of looking at it. No. No, I'm not that conspiratorial. Journalists should ask who benefits, but I, I don't know how you'd pull it off, frankly. Well, that would only be appropriate if I had created these events, which I did not. So who has actually benefited from the repeal of Roe versus Wade is the Democrats. Oh, they have seen a big upturn in voter engagement because it turns out that most people in the United States are not in favor of enforced childbirth. Will that be enough? Because I can't think of anything more important to uh, the democratic principles or more sacrosanct to anybody who's like a feminist than Roe v. Wade. And I was actually disappointed by the lack of uprising. It feels like the other side will take to the streets for the most meager, weird nonsense. But Well, taking to the street is one thing. Voting is another. Yeah. So people may not want to get out and, you know, jeopardize their lives by marching, but they can vote and they have voted in in some pretty significant elections uh, where you would have thought things would have gone the other way. But people turned out in sufficient numbers. They were sufficiently against it to say no at the ballot box. And I think that is that is happening. All It's happening to such an extent that the Republicans are downplaying their support for no abortions. Do you think uh, – here, now I'm going to do it. Do you think it will be enough? Because I think there's, there's a concern that, uh, you know, he's back. The way the American electoral system is, which is so weird, of course, just about any electoral system is weird, but theirs is weirder than most because they've got this electoral college. What it means is that a small number of swing states determine the outcome. And within the swing states, the outcome is pretty much determined by the independents. And amongst independents, they are swinging in a direction that says, no, the state should not own women's bodies. Okay, so when you say, will it be enough? I'm not being prescient or prophetic, but I'm just throwing these factors into the conversation. I think it's interesting that Power rests with the open-minded, not the ideologues. If you've chosen a team, you don't have power. You're, you're, you're kind of done. We know where you stand. The fulcrum is with those who are still thinking. In a democracy, mm-hmm. in a totalitarianism, there wouldn't be a middle ground uh, because you would have been killed by one side or the other for not adhering to their side. It's me or nothing in a, in a totalitarianism. But in the situation in the United States, which is not a totalitarianism, Yes, power rests with with those who can actually listen to uh, the pros and cons of a situation. I want to return to to totalitarianism in a minute. But first, like we're having this kind of conversation like that I've seen you have with people about these major world events. And it occurred to me as I was watching these conversations, like 
you're like the last novelist who gets these kinds of questions. I think once we look to authors, to people who make stories up as these seers who have this unique insight into, into the power, the the problems of our day. But I don't know that that's true anymore. Like, I don't see anybody reaching out to Neil Gaiman saying, like, what do you think is going to happen with Putin? It, it, it seems like, like a thing that we used to do. Well, <laughs> Neil writes fantasy. <laughs> so, so do you. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I write short stories that are fantasy. So, yes, the snail that finds itself in a woman's body, that's that's fantasy, more or less. But Neil writes fantasy all the time. Mm-hmm. So fantasy can explore lots of different things, including totalitarianism, which is what Lord of the Rings is about. But it doesn't explore them in a head-on way. I would dispute that novelists aren't doing that anymore. I'm not necessarily saying that they're not writing stories that are, I I suppose, allegories or or that are synthesizing the larger themes of our day. Or that they're uh, as works of art or as works of prophecy are any less than they ever were. But it feels like society is not looking to novelists for that in the same way that we once did. That's because they're they're looking to series TV. Yeah. <laughs> get a get Black Mirror. We'll talk about Black Mirror. I, I saw this show Handmaid's Tale. People talk about that. Yeah, for sure. And we just had the Ken and Barbie movie. Um, What'd you think? Well, I had a good time at it. Yeah, thought it was well done. It, it was clever. I didn't. Yes, I didn't. I, I got to engage with a character or like care about the outcome. And I. You I, mean you didn't engage with Barbie? Shame on you. I, I I'm afraid to get to share my real <laughs> thoughts on this movie. This is the age we live in. If I tell people what I really thought of Barbie, it could be a problem for me. <laughs> well, Barbie is a ditz. She's supposed to be a ditz. That's what she's playing. But she's she's the ditz who has a moment of enlightenment. But, of course, the Ken kind of is the focus of lots of people's uh, interest in that movie. Certain irony that he stole the show. Um, I don't think he totally stole it, but he went fairly far along the path to stealing it. <laughs> um, all right. Enough Barbie. Let's talk about totalitarianism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> It's become kind of an accepted narrative that there is a wave of authoritarianism that's sweeping the globe. Everyone's very concerned. And I think that if we were to try to describe that, people would quickly list off a bunch of right-wing populist leaders, Putin, Mm -hmm. Orban, Modi, Trump. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, looking closer to home, Canadians would say, well, we're not not immune to this. Look at what's, what's happening here. Look at the Freedom Convoy. Look at, you know, maybe to some lesser, milder extent, Doug Ford or Polyev. And yet, like in your fancy downtown Toronto neighborhood or in my fancy downtown Toronto neighborhood, people express their concerns. They wring their hands. I have done so. We worry about tyrants. But who's actually doing anything or talking about tyrants? It's not those people. The people who are out there saying death to tyrants, who are fighting for freedom, who are fighting authoritarianism – are fighting Trudeau. Yeah, isn't that funny? Boy, if, if he's the best we can do in the way of a totalitarian leader, it's pretty limp. The people who <laughs> feel that way feel strongly about it. They use that language. They consider sure. themselves, they're fighting for freedom. They're taking the language of anti-authoritarianism. No, what you what you have to ask them is, what would freedom look like, in your opinion? Well, they, they, What would they, that be like? 
I'll tell you what they say as best I can okay. understand it. And they have a narrative. And the narrative is that this is where tyranny is coming from. It's a guy who is going to control our media. He's already made laws to control our media. And he wants to control not just the vaccine thing, but he wants to control what you eat. He's going to make you eat bugs. He wants to control. Oh, is he? Oh, he, yeah. He, he wants to control uh, how far you move. He doesn't want you to have a car. You're going to live in a 15-minute city. You're not going to be able to eat beef anymore. Essentially, there is this paranoid structure, this whole concept that our freedoms are going to be curtailed from the left in their interests in dealing with climate change. These people, the World Economic Forum, they think they know what's best for us regular guys, and we have to fight tyrants. Okay. So it's very confusing. I mean, I don't think it is because people feel very strongly about which side they're on and which side is right. But when we think about this wave of authoritarianism, it's confused because the language of the authoritarians is anti-authoritarian. Sure. And Polyev is, is cozying up to the Freedom Convoy people. What's going on? We saw all of this in the 30s. <laughs> and if you think there aren't Russian bot farms at work, you're quite wrong. The guy who just got blown up out of his plane admitted it. Yeah. He was he was using Russian bot farms to influence the US election to considerably good effect and to I mean from their point of view in 2016. So it is in the interests of those who dislike western democracies to disrupt them in this way. That being said, the left frequently overplays its hand just as the right does. Uh-huh. Um, so extremes on both on both sides overplay their hands and and then there will be a reaction, particularly from convincible people in the middle. Um, so the real audience for all of this stuff is not your side, although you have to, of course, uh, show that you are a true believer and a religious adherent to the cause, whatever it may be. Uh, and that has always been true of extremes. They're they're always pushing each other towards a further extreme as a loyalty test and what have you. Um, I'm purer than you. Um, I'm more anti-tyrant right-wing than you. But the real audience, the real people you have to convince are in the middle. It's what we were saying about the independents. So unless you're going to make a reasonable argument to those people in the middle you're just going to be viewed as an extremist. I have felt similarly, and I know there are people who are going to pluck from what you just said, that you use the term both sides, and and does that mean that you're making an equivalence that they're equally evil or equally problematic? And what, I don't care about that because I, 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 feel like I, I feel like I feel the same way, which is that it's a struggle to not join a mob, and that's a, a worthwhile struggle, that we have to fight to keep our minds open. We have to fight to not enter into some kind of a dogma where we start to analyze who's purer than who or who needs to be kicked out. Well, you're, you're in a dogma when, when you have to believe whatever fearless leader says. Is there a time when you have to pick a side, though? Yeah, there is. Being the age I am, <laughs> you know, supposing you were in Vichy, France, mm -hmm. were you going to be a collaborationist or were you going to join the resistance? Is there something to be said for authoritarianism? You've been raising concerns along with others about climate change for many, many years. 
Okay. Yeah. The world didn't listen to those voices. Well, it did to a certain extent. Not enough, though, right? Like we're seeing well, it now. A lot more could have been done. Yeah, sure. But if nothing had been done, we'd be much worse off now. Let's look on the bright side. True. I grew up of the generation where a lot of this was downloaded to the individual and we were told that if we just sorted our garbage properly and carpooled. And and I I, I think, no, this is a huge failure where our culture of individualism, uh, we should have been very focused on policy because this required collective action through legislation. Sure. When I try to think and actually give respect to that lunatic conspiratorial Trudeau is a tyrant. I I think, you know what, what they're talking about there beyond the fantasy of him forcing us to eat bugs is there is talk within certain political circles that government is going to have to take some very drastic measures or it's just going to get very, very scary quickly. And I've often thought I'm not going to stop flying for work, but I, I, but I would welcome a 500% tax on business travel or on leisure travel so that I wasn't giving myself a disadvantage by saying I'm not going to travel for work anymore. I don't know. That's just one example. Other people look to the beef industry like this isn't sustainable. We can't keep doing this. The methane is a huge problem. That Mm -hmm. would curtail people's individual liberty to cook up a steak if you either got rid of beef or put an insanely high tax on it. But we might need measures like that. When When I think about authoritarianism, it's usually to deal with instability. The problem with our authoritarians right now is they're not doing anything to actually deal with the biggest problems of our era. They're kind of ignoring them. Maybe we could uh, give up some personal liberty if these megastates were doing things quickly and effectively to save us from ourselves. Well, what is personal liberty? I think it gets back to that. So you don't have a lot of personal liberty if, if you and your house burn up in a forest fire. It just kind of puts paid to your liberty right there. So it, it, it's going to depend how drastic things are. So would you say that FDR's New Deal was authoritarian? In a certain sense, I suppose you could argue that. It was about collective action. It was about these huge public works projects. It was people giving yeah, up. Yeah, but that isn't authoritarianism mm-hmm. in my view. Or would you say that Churchill's war cabinet, which combined all parties uh, because they were in an extreme situation – uh, and there was a lot of uh, loose lip sync ships. You can't uh, reveal this information. So in, in times of war, individual liberties get curtailed. So Ukraine right now, you're not supposed to say where the troops are at this very moment. You're not supposed to say that. Why? Because they become targets. Uh, so you're not supposed to say, you know, when is the convoy sailing, just to go back to World War II. Uh, and that's why people were quite paranoid and on the alert for spies and all of this kind of thing. It's because there were spies. <laughs> it's an excellent example. And in fact, the curtailments to personal liberty went far beyond that. There was a right way to think. I mean, the fact that they could draft you, you didn't own your own body. Uh, you know, the, what you could talk about, what was acceptable, how people, it was very, uh, collectivist. There was a uniform way of thinking. Propaganda was strictly controlled. A lot of propaganda and saving stuff. I don't know where that stuff went, but you're supposed to save newspapers, uh, tin foil, uh, fat. You saved it in little tin cans. I don't know what they did with it. So people gave up their personal liberty because basically it was the end of the world was at stake. Like like everything was on the line. Isn't it it. more so now? And wouldn't that 
suggests that a similar surrender of personal freedoms makes sense now? Let's find out. Uh, I think we still haven't got back to what personal freedoms are. So personal freedoms are always limited to what's on the smorgasbord. So you don't have freedom to live wherever you want if you can't afford it. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to have a personal freedom that said you could live in a big mansion or a super-duper condo or whatever it is that you think is good, uh, and that that would be a personal freedom. But in our um, society, everything is limited by what you can afford. So how much personal freedom have you got if you're poor? Just for example, nobody's talking about that. And, you know, saying boo to tyrants, etc., it actually means nothing if you can't afford these personal freedoms you're supposed to be uh, defending. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody – Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. I think that what we saw play out during the pandemic was the first time in a lot of people's lives that the collective asked anything of the individual or told you what to do. And it was very reasonable and explained why mm -hmm. we had to make these sacrifices. And there was mm -hmm. sort of a social contract. We're going to pay you. If mm -hmm. you got to stay home, we're going to pay you. And maybe they didn't pay enough. And Oh, come on. Some people suffered a lot worse than others. Yes. Those who didn't have money to begin with did. And those people push back. I don't think it was those people. If, if you actually analyze who was involved in that, these were not the poorest of the poor at all. No, but, but I— They but, couldn't afford to travel to Ottawa. <laughs> so who were they? I mean, do we just think that these were people who were fooled by foreign propaganda? I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. I think some of them were well-meaning people who didn't like what was going on. So when you don't like what was going on and nobody liked what was going on, nobody, mm-hmm. nobody thought, oh, hooray, we're having a pandemic. This is great. Nobody thought that. Oh, yippee, a lot of people are dying of COVID. Uh, that was not, I mean, there might have been a few people who thought that was good, decrease the world population, etc. But by and large, nobody liked it. And when, when you've got a situation that nobody likes, you blame somebody. Mm-hmm. So I'm going back to the bubonic plague. <laughs> who got blamed? It had to be somebody's fault, right? So first it was lepers. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. They wandered from place to place. They must be putting something in the wells. Uh, next up was Jews. Yeah. Had to be them. But when they got rid of the lepers and the Jews, which they did, and it still kept going on, who was the third group that got blamed? It was witches. <laughs> you couldn't even see them flying around to place, from place to place because they did it at night on brooms, like they were invisible. And there was a huge conflagration of, of witches or people who got blamed. So you're going to blame somebody. And uh, this was directed blame. And uh, within families, there are big divides. You know, I'm blaming you because you didn't get vaccinated. I'm blaming you because you did. And you're getting little nanobots put in your bloodstream, etc. So there's the natural tendency to want to blame people, especially when you don't know what's really causing it. I think that's interesting, and there's obviously a a modern corollary, the the obsession with trans issues from that side of the right. Okay, so my direct question to them would be, so you don't think these people should exist, but they do exist. What's your plan? Are you going to murder them all? Is that your plan? Are you going to have a concentration camp? What are you going to actually do if you feel this way about those people? And what would they say? Oh, no, 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 that's not well, well, well. Uh, Well, what is your plan? What's your plan? I think that the connection between these things, like we're trying to deal with some really big, practical, actual problems. Yeah, so you go to blame somebody, and this is an easy group to blame because they're small, they're defenseless, and and you can whip up a frenzy about them. Right. Instead of the trajectory that maybe this needs to go, which is rather than this overreaction to the first curtailment of individual liberties, which doesn't really bode well for like – if we are going to require more sacrifices in that World War II sense of people, uh, I feel like government just got their hand burned and the message is back off. Well, I don't know. If you actually look at public opinion polls during all of that, um, it was like 80 percent, yes, we have to shut down the convoy. It's true, but Polyev went and embraced the convoy and now he's polling way above Trudeau. Well, let's see how that works out. He doesn't have a plan. He hasn't said what his plan is. He has no plan. He's, he's just rage farming. It's a lot about describing these uh, plots against people and not about what is going to be done to solve the problems. Yeah, but you have to actually reveal what the plot is. You mm-hmm. have to come up with, like, where is the plot? Who's doing the plot? Where are the witches? 
Uh, what's your proof that the lepers are putting stuff in the wells? So the, the witches today I don't think are necessarily trans people. I, I think that the people who are being vilified here, though trans people are certainly getting hurt. But the witches are some amorphous sense that there is a woke agenda scheming to, I don't know, uh, take your kid away from you, cut you out of the information loop and give them hormone-blocking drugs. It's such a, a fantasy. It's such a work of fiction. I don't necessarily find it all that interesting to take it apart. What I do well, find, I think you have to take it apart if it's having the effect that you describe. <laughs> I, I guess so. I think that you can't help but get drawn into this culture war stuff. But there's – in talking to you, there's something that's more interesting to me about this because I think a lot of your work has been about documenting the scapegoating of women and mm. that, that as a historical, like, just reflexive go-to. And that, I think, kind of, if we t tell a narrative that takes us to a, a movement for women's rights, and now we're at this place where it seems like something different is happening. If we get away from these fantasy narratives about what's happening and to what – not everybody in the younger generation, but a significant number of young people are doing something that strikes me as really like an interesting experiment. Like it does seem like something is different. It seems like there's a significant movement of people trying to unshackle themselves from the idea of gender categories entirely. Well, that's fine until you get pregnant. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you is, is that is that a folly and will nature kind of like reassert itself or, no, or is um, there something – Yeah, OK. On the one hand, you have that. But on the other hand, you have an extreme two-box situation. You know, men here, women there. I was just talking to somebody, a journalist from Israel, who says increasingly people are pushing gender segregation at public events, you know, women here, men there. Uh, this is the orthodox position. And it all comes from two-box thinking of one kind or another, that there are only two boxes – wool over here, linen over there, sheep over here, goats over there, that there's only two boxes and you have to be in one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's actually never been true. In nature, it's not true. In human genetics, it is also not true. <laughs> so shoving people into closed boxes is, in that sense, contrary to nature. But saying there is no gender is also contrary to nature. Okay. Hold on. That's That sounds like a contradiction. No, I didn't say there are only two genders. Saying there is no gender <laughs> right. is, is not true either. It's not true either. You just have to think and you, you have to think out of the two boxes. And saying, you know, yeah, that, well, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be more boxes. Uh, but the boxes are not closed. There have always been outliers. There have always been transitional forms, or there wouldn't have been any evolution. So okay. So what is a lungfish? <laughs> is it a fish? Is it a land animal? I was just going to ask you what is a lungfish. You were not going to ask no. me that. You don't. Even, you've never heard of it before. <laughs> no, I don't know why we're talking about lungfish. Well, because it's a transitional form. So. There's about a lot of eye rolling at the ever expanding list of LGBTQ, which I guess are boxes, and it's okay to add another box. And then when you talk to younger people, it's just why are you so hung up on these boxes and categories? Okay, so identity politics comes from discrimination, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So usually, 
people don't form an identity to have a politics about unless they've been already categorized as something or other and then knocked down for it. So then you have identity politics as a way of fighting back. Okay, but then that can become a self-enclosed box. You're not going to let anybody in. You're going to have big arguments about who's in the box and who isn't in the box. Um, So that can become very restrictive as well. But the origin of this stuff is people are dumping on us for being name your thing. Therefore, we people in name your thing are going to get together and fight back. So that's where it comes from. It doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from a vacuum like all movements. All movements come from the lack of something. When being male and gay was illegal, Mm -hmm. the lack was full civil rights for you. So then you got together and fight back. And that's an identity. That's where things start. And and you're never more certain about who you are than when you say – we're here, we're queer, get used to it, or when whatever internal um, confusion Haskalah Jews in Europe had about whether they were, am I still a Jew? I don't really believe in God. Well, to the Nazi, you're a Jew, so you're a Jew, but then you're being defined by your oppressor. So I think what we're looking at now is what comes after that. Can you figure out who you are when it's not being defined by the person who's oppressing you? And I think that the kind of queerness or the kind of gender fluidity that we're seeing emerge now is sort of like a post- I, 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 I know I'm getting into trouble because we're not post-oppression, but I think that some people who are free to define themselves not just in contrast to their oppressor or in defiance of their oppressor or fighting back of their oppressor are saying, why do I need any of these boxes? Yeah, okay. So I'm going to throw something in here that <laughs> may alarm you. Um, how much of it is Peter Pannery? I don't want to grow up. The category I really don't want to belong to is adults. I want to remain a gender-fluid child who can, you know, be whatever and um, doesn't have to be an adult with all of these responsibilities and hormones and genders and all of these things that are obviously so troublesome and annoying. So how much of it is that? How much of it is Peter Pan saying, I don't want to grow up? And I can see a lot of reasons why people might not wish to grow up. And I think every kid, if you go back to being a kid, has had that phase. Oh, no, don't tell me I have to um, have a period (laughs) or whatever it may be. I don't want that. It's horrible. I have to think about that for a minute. Yeah, think about it. And and so adulthood would push you into a category. Well, when you look at the adults— and all the angst they go through and the responsibilities they have and all their worries and, you know, having to pay the rent and awful stuff like that. Um, It's very appealing not to have to be one of those, not to have to choose. I know that as to cis people who are uh, identify as the uh, into the genders that we are born in, some will say we are ill-equipped to have this conversation. There are certainly full-grown adults who consider themselves gender fluid or you know, any, any number of other categories who would say that this is an offensive idea. What, that we're talking about it? Well, that, that we're having a conversation that equates it with being juvenile, that, that is, it makes it a Peter Pan syndrome. 
Uh, I've got nothing against being juvenile. <laughs> it might be a virtue. Well, I think most artistic people remain children in some respect. All right. Uh, forgetting what's offensive or what other people are going to d- d- deem offensive, do I hear you right that that's a fanciful, youthful uh, idea that we can free ourselves of these categories and those categories have some sort of biological objective reality that's going to assert itself over our – most, uh... But biology exists, but not just in relation to gender. I hate to break this to you, Jesse, <laughs> but if you're lucky, yeah, you're going to get older. Yeah. Now you have some control over that, mm-hmm. but you do not have ultimate control over that. One of these days, you're going to die, and that's biology. You are so prophetic. You, you cannot just you cannot just dismiss biology. Yeah. No, for instance, I'm short. There's nothing I can do about that. I'm just short. I would like to be taller, but I'm not. Do you think what we're seeing are are, are people trying to imagine their way out of biological reality? Well, then we're going to have a big argument about exactly what is biology biological reality because that's open to a lot of questions Mm -hmm. too but knowing what we now know about which diseases are inheritable um that's biology too so have you have you got your genes have you spat in the bottle i haven't spat in the bottle yet oh you gotta do it you've got to find out how much neanderthal you've got We can place bets. I uh, I don't feel feel like it will work out well for me if I find that out. Oh, I think it will. Neanderthal is not bad. It's not a bad thing. I think you've said four things in this conversation that might get you further into trouble. You've been in trouble again in the past few years. I'm always in trouble, Jesse. I'm never not in trouble. Do you look for it? No. Just happens. I think there's a virtue to staying in the game to the extent that you're open to to some trouble. Well, what is trouble? Trouble is other people not approving of you. Mm -hmm. And that has always been true, and it always will be true. And it's true for you, too. There are a lot of people who don't approve of you. I hope you're aware of that. That's my job. I I don't create works of art. (laughs) I'm just here to get into trouble and to get you into trouble. Artists have always been in trouble, especially they have been in trouble since uh, the beginning of the 19th century. And this conversation has been going on for a very, very long time long time. So should art be something that's good for society or should it be something that challenges society? And there are both views. There's only one right right answer to that question, though. Well, that's in your view. Yeah, but I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret Atwood, I make podcasts. I'm lucky people listen to them, but then they're gone. You write novels. You've written a lot of them. They'll they'll be gone too, Jesse. Well, they last longer than podcasts anyhow. Well, yeah, somewhat. Yeah, I don't know. Those podcasts are going to be out there forever and somebody's going to go over them and, and find some heresy that you have committed and bring it up against you in about five years. Well, hopefully it'll still be good for ratings then. <laughs> <laughs> My point is simply that the... Uh, the goal that a lot of people have had and that maybe I fantasized about of, of reaching some form of fleeting immortality through writing the great novel, it's getting less and less likely with every passing day. You've written over 50 books. I haven't written one real book. But you're writing a memoir. Mm. 
your memoir is going to be about your life. Mm-hmm. Memoirs are about what you can remember. Well, okay, this is helping me here. This conversation is a part of your life. You've been very yes. kind to me. We've had a few conversations. We had a, a lovely coffee. You're wondering whether I'm going to put you in my it's memoir. It's my last chance. <laughs> it's you're the only in. way it's going to happen you're for in. me. You're in. <laughs> That's a promise. I'm taking that. Yes, I'm going to, the index will say, Jesse Brown, you're looking up and say, looks like Orson Welles. <laughs> now, there's a, I, I, you said that earlier, and I was very, very chuffed because he was an early hero of mine. But it's very important to specify when you tell somebody that it looked like Orson Welles. Third man. Third man. Third man era, Harry Lyme, Orson Welles. That's right. Yes. Not the later version. (laughs) Kind of fat. You're very (laughs) kind to me. Thank you, Margaret Atwood. (laughs) Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it.